You're listening to a University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a talk by Gordon McMullen, Professor of English at King's College London. Professor McMullen's talk, Remembering and Forgetting Shakespeare in 1916, was given as part of the 2016 UCD Abbey Theatre Shakespeare Lectures. It took place in the Peacock stage in the Abbey Theatre on the 12th of May. McMullen's talk addressed what it means to remember Shakespeare in 2016 and reflects on their forgetting that is also required. Forgetting not only aspects of Shakespeare's life, work and legacy, but also that of certain of his contemporaries. The talk was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Professor McMullen was introduced by UCD's Dr. Jane Grogan. Thank you all so much for coming out on uh, what's a really beautiful day outside. Um, inside the Abbey, though, uh, there may be sun outside, but inside the Shakespeare, there's Othello on the main stage, and today, uh, the second lecture uh, in this year's UCD Abbey Theatre Shakespeare Lectures. Um, I'm pleased to say it's now in its fifth year, um, and it's a particularly special year, of course, not just for Ireland, um, but for Shakespeare. It's the 400th anniversary of his death in 1616. And our speaker today has been leading the celebrations of that anniversary in the UK, um, as the only begetter, if I can call him that, of Shakespeare 400, um, a consortium of 25 leading cultural and heritage institutions that have been celebrating Shakespeare in 2016. Um, so it's been a very big success, but it's also been extremely busy. Uh, so we're particularly pleased to have here and to welcome um, Professor Gordon McMullen of King's College London to the Peacock stage this afternoon. Let me just say a few words about Gordon. Uh, Gordon, uh, and I will try and embarrass him as he stands here, uh, looking very calm. <laughs> Gordon is an internationally esteemed Shakespeare scholar with a particularly impressive range of interests and achievements. And, and I'll just mention some of the more recent ones. Um, first and foremost, he's done a very great service to students and scholars of Shakespeare all over the world as a general textual editor of the very new Norton edition of Shakespeare's Complete Works. And this isn't just any old edition, this is the landmark edition, and anybody you know who will be studying Shakespeare in the next 20 years will be using uh, Gordon's edition. They've also produced a digital edition as well, um, and Gordon himself has, has um, uh, produced critical editions of two, two versions of Romeo and Juliet as part of it, but they'll also be printed separately. Um, other writing he's doing at the moment then includes a co-edited volume on late style and its discontents, um, which ranges across art and literature and music. Um, and Gordon, of course, is also the author of uh, a, a seminal book on Shakespeare's late, late style. And then there's Antipodean Shakespeare, which centres on the remembrance of Shakespeare and the tercentenary in Australia and New Zealand, which he tells me is nearly ready for press. You might, in fact, have seen Gordon or heard him on BBC TV or radio recently talking about Shakespeare. But I wanted to also point out that he's been influential, too, in the ways in which we engage with Shakespeare in sort of more discreet ways or sort of more behind-the-scene ways. Um, so, for example, he's advised the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, as well as the British Library in their recent exhibition on Shakespeare. Um, and even the London Philharmonic Orchestra have recently called him for advice on Shakespeare-related repertory. Recently, he was honoured by Shakespeare's Globe Theatre as a Sam Wanamaker Fellow. Um, that is, somebody who's done important and visionary work in promoting Shakespeare, just as Sam Wanamaker did in conceiving of rebuilding the Globe. So he'll be presenting his work um, there and receiving his award, uh, award on stage in the Globe in a few weeks' time. Last night, then, at the Pierce Museum, in the first of this year's um, UCD Abbey Theatre Shakespeare Lectures, we heard and Andrew Murphy and Owen Rowe reflecting on Shakespeare in 1916 in Ireland. And to, to, today we're going to get a glimpse of what was happening with the Shakespeare tercentenary across the Irish Sea. So I'd ask you to welcome Gordon McMullen to speak today at, on the Peacock stage on remembering and forgetting Shakespeare in 1916. 
very generous introduction. And you, uh, you, you, uh, those of you who know Jane know exactly how welcoming she and kind she is, and she's been absolutely that way for, for me in the last couple of days. Um, so I want to thank UCD and Jane in particular for inviting me to speak here in Dublin, uh, Dublin in this year of all years. And I'm very touched that anyone's here at all, given how gorgeous a day it is out there. What on earth are you doing in this dark and gray? It's a great honour to be invited to be part of this ongoing series of UCD Abbey Shakespeare lectures. I know because I've listened to the podcast that I have quite a tradition to live up to. And I know too that Andy Murphy, that Jane just mentioned, who gave this marvellous lecture at the Pierce Museum uh, last night, but who can't be here today for various reasons. Um, I know he sneakily got in ahead of me last year by giving his marvellous talk about Shakespeare in the Easter Rising, so I hope I can live up to the standard required. It's actually quite moving to be speaking in this building. I did Juno and the Peacock for A-level hundreds of years ago. So I was aware of the Abbey and its significance long before I first visited Dublin. Um, but today, as Jane said, I want to talk about a different national theatre, one that was imagined a little earlier than this one, but didn't take physical form until quite a lot later. Uh, I suspect there will be a range of parallels um, in the establishment of Irish national theatre, and I'd be keen to hear about them afterwards from you. So, at the rear of the foyer of London's National Theatre is the building's foundation stone which begins with the words, in memory of William Shakespeare. Now this might strike the casual theatre-goer, if they notice it at all, as a wee bit curious. Surely this expression of commemoration would be more logically located half a mile east at Shakespeare's Globe or 100 miles northwest in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre at Stratford, since those are the two UK theatres that can be guaranteed to offer at least one production of a Shakespeare play at any given moment whereas the NT's repertoire is, as befits a consciously national theatre, far broader in scope. In 2016, the apparent incongruity of the Foundation Stone's commemorative function is all the more apparent, since the NT has a little, is a little perversely opening no Shakespeare production during the quarter centenary year. And as you like, it was staged earlier in the year um, uh, to mixed, mixed-ish reviews, but it, did, it opened back in autumn 2015. Yet the history of the National Theatre was closely tied right from the start to the commemoration of Shakespeare. And there's been a production of at least one Shakespeare play at the National pretty much every year since its first season. Furthermore, its origins, and those of both the Royal Shakespeare Company and Shakespeare's Globe, are arguably bound up, and certainly more than any of those organisations cares to admit, with the prolonged and often tortuous process of commemoration that began with the build-up to the Shakespeare Tercentenary of 1916. There are obvious enough reasons why those theatres might not wish to overemphasize their origins in the Tercentenary, not least the RSC and the Globe, neither of which would especially want to be seen as in some way the product of the history of a competitor theatre. Nevertheless, it's a story that I think can be valuably told both so as to demonstrate the extent of the interweaving of Shakespearean performance and commemoration across the 20th century, and as a case study in the selective rememberings and, above all, the forgettings that constitute the processes of memorialization. Uh, You have a handout, which you will see consists of some of the PowerPoint slides that I thought I'd be showing, but that image at the bottom of the first page in case you're wondering, dates from 1955. That is, in fact, the foundation stone, and you can't quite see the words on the, on the photograph. Um, dates from 1955, four years after the stone had been laid, when it still stood on its own on the South Bank, awaiting work to begin on the actual theatre, despairing of the Nationals ever becoming a reality 
the acerbic theatre critic Kenneth Tynan staged its mock funeral. <laughs> the stone was eventually moved to its current location when the NT was finally built. As a point of comparison with the NT's unexpectedly Shakespearean foundation stone, if you turn over the page of the handbook, you will see a different commemorative marker of much less grandeur as it were. This is um, a bronze memorial plaque that's been located on the wall of the Department of English at my place of employment, King's College London, for several decades, both in its earlier location on the Strand and more recently in the building up 22 Kingsway, where we're currently housed. I don't know if you can quite see it on the photocopy, but what it says is this. In memory of Israel Gallant's Knight, Doctor of Literature, for 27 years, Professor of English Language and Literature, this tablet has been placed in the Skeet and Furnival Library, itself an example of his devotion to the college. And you can't quite see it, um, but it gives uh, the date that his, his birth and death dates are the side of his head. So it's 1864 to 1930. Sir Israel Gallant is the hero of this talk in a certain way. Medievalist, Shakespearean, cultural entrepreneur, Professor of English at King's from 1903 to his death in 1930. He'd studied under the philologist and medievalist William Walter Skeet at Christ's College, Cambridge, and he later persuaded Keith Skeet's widow to donate her husband's library to King's. He was also instrumental in King's acquisition of the library of F.J. Furnival, the founder of the Early English Text Society. But the detail that intrigues me on this plaque is not the referencing of the means by which these collections were acquired by the college, but rather the date that the plaque gives for Galantz's birth, 1864. This is not in fact correct. Galantz was born in 1863, but the mistake is telling because it serves, consciously or otherwise, to align Galantz with Shakespeare. The tercentenary of his birth fell in 1864, which is also the year that initiated the ongoing, unresolved struggle between Stratford-upon-Avon and London for ownership of the Shakespeare industry. On that occasion, 1864, Stratford won resoundingly, hosting a two-week Shakespeare festival and setting in train the process that led to the building of the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, which in due course became the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. In 1916, Gallant sought to reverse that victory and focus commemorative activity in London, as, on London as a springboard for a vision of Shakespeare that he would, would he hoped, transcend both the local and the national acquiring a global identity. He is never likely to re be remembered very fondly in Stratford. That Gallant should be linked with Shakespeare by way of the plaque is not so surprising, even if it's a slight con, both because Gallant was a consistent presence in the planning for the 1916 tercentenary commemorations, and because it appears to be the fate of Shakespeare's commemorators to blur themselves or to be blurred by others with the writer in whose memory they're ostensibly operating. It's arguable that without the assiduous work of Gallant on behalf of the various memorial committees of which he was honorary secretary in the build-up to the 1916 tercentenary, the histories of the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and of Shakespeare's Globe would have been very different. In and of itself, this isn't necessarily a very valuable claim because, you know, at least if it seemed to belong to the slightly dodgy one-man-who-changed-the-world school of historiography, and obviously I have a local interest in reclaiming the history of the under-recognized achievements of a predecessor of mine at King's, right? But I want to offer a short history of Galaz's involvement in the 1916 tercentenary in order to do two things. 
to reflect on the blend of remembering and forgetting that seems to constitute commemoration, and to think about the intersection of the Shakespeare tercentenary in the First World War. Galassi's leading role in the tercentenary, as opposed to his role as a founder of the British Academy, say, seemed quite rapidly to have been forgotten in the period between the wars. And this attack of amnesia seems to me synecdochic of the larger forgetting of the impact of the tercentenary on the creation of certain contemporary UK cultural institutions. So to reassemble this history, we have to go back to the time immediately before Gallant was appointed to a chair at King's. In his preface to The Book of Homage to Shakespeare, the sumptuous commemorative volume that he edited in 1916, and which Oxford University Press have reissued this year, he noted the history of planning that had gone into the tercentenary. For years past, he wrote, as far back as 1904, when this theatre was uh, first thought up, as I understand it, many of us had been looking forward to the Shakespeare tercentenary as the occasion for some fitting memorial to symbolise the intellectual fraternity of mankind in the universal homage accorded to the genius of the greatest Englishman. Those plans had, however, been curtailed by the war, Glance's language again, the dream of the world's brotherhood to be demonstrated by its common and united commemoration of Shakespeare, with many another fond illusion, was rudely shattered. And those illusions had, in any way, been um, subject to a great deal of struggle, underachievement, before war broke out. Planning for the tercentenary had, in fact, begun with a letter to the Times in 1903 from a wealthy Yorkshire brewer called Richard Badger offering funds towards the creation of a statue of Shakespeare, since he felt the great writers, quote, countrymen have as yet failed properly to memorialize his marvelous talent. So he offered some money for a statue as long as the London County Council would agree to provide a site, which they did. And something called the London Shakespeare League, which had been formed a year earlier, primarily to promote the aims of the theatre practitioner William Powell, who wanted to create a space for what he called the truer playing of Shakespeare in a theatre surrounded on three sides by the audience. So this committee, slightly diverted from that plan, sent Gallant to Scarborough to respond to Badger's request that a committee be formed to raise funds for the statue. So at a public meeting in February 1905, the Shakespeare Memorial Committee was formed with Gallant, as ever, as its honorary secretary. Some time went by, and I'm not quite sure why, and then in March 1908, at London's Mansion House, Gallant announced on behalf of the committee that there would be an international competition for the design of the proposed statue, which was to be erected at Portland Place. Proposals for the memorial include a design that can be viewed in the National Theatre Archive. It's a kind of cross between the Albert Memorial in Kensington Gardens and Edinburgh's Scott Monument with Shakespeare sort of sitting smugly in the middle. Thankfully, it was never built. The statue scheme, however, provoked a massive rank. The most forthright dissent came from supporters of the long-term plan for a state-subsidised national theatre, which had received a substantial boost in 1904 when theatre practitioner Harley Granville Barker and journalist William Archer privately circulated plans for a theatre they considered appropriate to national status, and they called their plans scheme and estimates for a national theatre. They argued, as you probably know, that the only appropriate way to commemorate the greatest of playwrights would be what they called a living monument, a theatre that would break away completely and unequivocally from the ideals and traditions of the profit-seeking stage. And they vehemently rejected what Archer would call the dumb carven stones of a memorial statue. 
The struggle was followed by negotiation, and in 1908, the Shakespeare Memorial National Theatre Committee was formed from a merger of the Shakespeare Memorial Committee and representatives of the movement for a national theatre, with the ubiquitous Galantz once more as honorary secretary. So this time, the plan was not to create a statue, but a theatre in Shakespeare's name. So the process was underway, but there wasn't any money. So two major fundraising events took place in 1910 and 1912, both successful occasions in their own right, but neither, in the end, productive of actual funds for the project. The first of these was the Shakespeare Memorial Ball of 1911. This was an overtly establishment event led by Mrs. George Cornwallis West, the American-born former Lady Randolph Churchill, mother of Winston, which took place in the Royal Albert Hall and consisted of a lavish dinner and a series of vignettes of royal and aristocratic parties, improbably costumed as the casts of Shakespeare's plays, which you can see to your horror if you turn the page. The moustache doesn't really go with the rough, does it, let's be honest. And the top picture looks more like Wagner. And if you go over the page, you get Vita Sackville West. And sadly, that picture's cut off the major feature, which is holding a whip. I don't think I can think of the play that is relevant to that, but there we are. Um, an imposing publication called The Souvenir of the Shakespeare Memorial National Theatre Ball emerged in 1912, illustrated with these images of the social elite in Shakespearean costume, enlisting scores of royal attendees. I suppose the equivalent now would be Prince Harry and attempted girlfriends turning up in spray on Ziggy Stardust costumes. <laughs> the event was a public relations catastrophe, simply confirming in the eyes of the public what they took to be the privileged and self-indulgent nature of the Shakespeare Theatre project. The second fundraiser in 1912 was the Shakespeare's England exhibition at Earl's Court. This was a large-scale, privately-sponsored event that lasted six months. It was designed by architect of empire Edwin Lutyens, and its leading light was again Mrs. George Cornwallis West. The exhibition was designed as an immersive experience to give Londoners the chance to, quote, walk straight into the 16th century and visualize the environment and atmosphere of the period. Buildings included a replica of Shakespeare's Stratford birthplace, and the two most visually striking reconstructions were Francis Drake's ship, The Revenge, floating in an artificial harbor, and as you can see, um, a working replica of the Globe Theater which was reportedly the most popular attraction of the entire exhibition, offering a cycle of half-hour extracts from plays by Shakespeare, Marlowe, and Fletcher. Now, the building was derived from a design that had been drawn up by William Pole, the leading light of the London Shakespeare League, back in 1897. The Pole was contemptuous of the Earl's Court Globe, calling it a travesty of his proposals. The exhibition, perhaps not surprisingly, failed to raise significant funds for the Memorial Theatre. As with the Albert Hall, the hopes of the Shakespeare Memorial National Theatre Committee were largely brushed aside by the personal ambitions of Cornwallis West, for whom the event served to cement her connections with royalty and to entertain her society friends. The architect Lutyens wrote to his wife, regretting his involvement in Cornwallis West's scheme. I feel rotten sorry that I had anything to do with it as under the banner of good intentions and names of bona fide endeavours, she means to whip up the public and her society smarts to her own benefit. Thus, even before the outbreak of war, the challenges of fundraising had doomed the project to build a Shakespeare Memorial Theatre in time for the 1916 tercentenary. 
the fact that Gallant acknowledged at the opening of his preface to the Book of Homage. We had hoped, he writes, that on a site that has already been acquired, a stately building to be associated with that august name, equipped and adequately endowed for the furtherance of Shakespearean drama and dramatic art generally, would have made the year 1916 memorable in the annals of the English stage. This failure actually to build a theatre was clearly deeply frustrating for Goliath and for the members of the SMNT committee. Yet they sustained their commitment to the building of the theatre. And in 1914, they had made their move, spending £50,000 of the total of £85,000 they had in their coffers on acquiring an acre or so of land in Bloomsbury as a site for the theatre and hoping against hope that they might still host its opening production by the tercentenary of April 1916. Or rather, May. It had in fact been agreed long before war broke out that the tercentenary commemorations would be postponed until the May Day weekend, with the solemn explanation that the change of calendar from Julian to Gregorian in the late 16th century meant that the 1st of May 1916 was in fact 400 years to the day from the 23rd of April 1616, thereby avoiding any uncomfortable conflation of Shakespeare and Christ since the 23rd of April 1916 was, as you will very well know, Easter Day. This decision to delay the tercentenary underlines, even as it seeks to elide, the quasi-religious reference in which Shakespeare and his writings were held at this time. There was no memorial theatre. The outbreak of war not only required suspension of the project, but also provided the committee with a practical explanation for the continued lack of progress with the building. And it had already been made clear by the government that any kind of large-scale Shakespeare festival would be considered in poor taste in wartime. Still, the tercentenary committee and the person yet again of Gallant was, was responsible for one quasi-theological gesture in the form of a brief publication, Shakespeare Tercentenary Observance in the Schools and Other Institutions, which was issued for Shakespeare Day, which was the 3rd of May 1916. And it set out, in effect, a liturgy for the occasion, a Bible reading, Three Shakespearean songs, a choice of eight, was helpfully provided in an appendix, discourse on Shakespeare, some scenes or passages from Shakespeare, and finally the national anthem. Shifting the date away from Easter didn't then wholly suppress the religious urge. The Tercentenary Observance was a derivative of the London Shakespeare League's long-standing project for an international Shakespeare day, and it was the focus of the last of the four official days marking the Tercentenary in London. And it was a good instance, I think, of the means by which the SMNT committee just quietly retained its place in the centre of commemorative activity, even though it hadn't managed to build a theatre. The day was devoted to a political commemoration at London's Mansion House, which began, according to the Times, with the reading out of messages from the King and Queen, from the US President Woodrow Wilson, and it featured dignitaries ranging from the Archbishop of Canterbury to the American and Spanish ambassadors. The neutrality at this stage of the war of the United States and of Spain being, as uh, critic Richard Fuchs has noted, an obvious subtext of the occasion. As well as them, there was the High Commissioners of Australia and South Africa, representatives of the governments of China, Belgium, Switzerland and Greece, and a lengthy list of theatre practitioners, cultural and creative celebrities, and academics, including the Lanz. The Lord Mayor's opening speech was followed by tributes from the US Ambassador and the High Commissioners of Australia and South Africa. So it was a thoroughly global occasion then, 
though in a less than comfortable context. As the Liverpool Courier put it, Mansion House that afternoon presented a scene of tranquility and intellectual refreshment, the very antithesis of the war and the Dublin Rebellion. Phrasing that serves to try to serve to detach Shakespeare from global events that might, in another light, have suggested that the historical stability celebrated along with the tercentenary was more than a little illusory. The message from the King and Queen with which the Mansion House event opened acknowledged receipt of their copy of one of Israel Galatz's contributions to the commemorative process, the volume that I've mentioned called A Book of Homage to Shakespeare. If you go over the page again, you'll see the title page and one opening of the lengthy table of contents. Their Majesties have graciously commanded that their thanks be sent to you for this illustrious record of reverence for him to whose memory the whole civilised world is now doing honour. And alongside the report of the event in the Times is a column describing the publication of this sumptuous volume, which, quote, may be said to record in a peculiarly Catholic way what after 300 years the best literary representatives of British and Allied culture are saying about Shakespeare. And certainly the Book of Homage, a large, elegantly produced book with a very consciously global reach, underlines the hegemonic status of Shakespeare in the early 20th century as an icon of Englishness and empire. Yet it also, as the journalist's phrase in a peculiarly Catholic way suggests, serves as a precursor of the future role of Shakespeare as a figure of a global culture not restricted to empire. The Book of Homage has an amazingly ambitious sweep, with 166 contributions in verse and prose, in languages from Sanskrit to Setswana, celebrating a wide range of versions of and meanings for Shakespeare though with the omission, for obvious enough reasons, of representation from Germany, Austria, Hungary, or Turkey. Contributors range from novelists John Galsworthy and Edmund Goss, to poets Wilfred Campbell and René de Klerk, from Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore, to the Nobel Prize winning human biologist Sir Ronald Ross. Each offers a perspective appropriate to their context. Dante and Shakespeare, by an Italian senator, say, or an edic homage to William Shakespeare, by an Icelandic scholar. And most either praise Shakespeare's genius or choose a particular element in Shakespeare's oeuvre on which to focus their brief contribution. But there are also contributions that, as critics have begun to realise, complicate our understanding of the work that the Book of Homage was doing. One of these, as David Galtwick and others have pointed out, um, and you can see it over the page again, is the article called A South African's Homage, the only anonymous item in the volume written not by the white South African that you might have anticipated in the context of the mansion house and so forth, but written in Setswana by Solomon Pleike, an early ANC activist whom Galantz met when he was part of a pre-war political delegation to London. Pleike's playful English translations in telling the story of an educated native finding his self-construction through Shakespeare quietly perform an act of what can be seen in hindsight as a conscious form of proto-postcolonial self-fashioning. Another contribution that doesn't fit with an imperialist reading of Galantz's role, and that involves some telling issues of translation, is that of future president of the Irish Republic, Douglas Hyde. A poem in Irish entitled, forgive my accent, An Rudahola de Gwail Extrapford Air and Awan how it fared with a gale at Stratford-1, the Avon. Hyde, as you will of course know, 
nationalist and promoter of the Irish language, who 20 or so years earlier had given a speech on the necessity of de-anglicising Ireland, was, as Andy Murphy has phrased it, rather an odd person for Gallants to have approached in connection with the book. And the poem he contributed required some diplomacy on Gallants' part. Its persona is that of an Irishman who notes early on that England was not liked of me, that he had sorely suffered, he and his folk, hatred was in his heart, but whose distaste for England is calmed, I consider this a little unlikely, I should say, by a visit to Stratford. As Murphy and others have shown, there are certain discrepancies, we go over the page again, there are certain discrepancies between the Gaelic verse and the English translation, notably it's stanza 25, where the translation, as you can see, is noticeably briefer than any other. You can see the discrepancy between the Irish and the English on the page there, at the bottom of the handout. The English translation is reduced to two and a bit lines. Oh, Albion, if an enemy knock at thy door, take him to Stratford on the Avon. This seems a curious curtailing, but to Irish speakers it would have been distinctly amusing, since Hyde's own translation, held with the Galatz materials now at the Folger Shakespeare Library, reads as follows, and you can see this if you go over the page again. O Albion, deceitful, sinful, guileful, hypocritical, destructive, lying, slippery, if an enemy knock at thy door, take him to Stratford on the Avon. There was, not surprisingly, a certain amount of correspondence between Galance and Hyde. <coughs> Galance seemed quite politely if Hyde would mind if the translation were toned down a little in a few places. And he graciously replied, you've been so kind and have taken such an awful lot of trouble over the homage book that of course no one confided in their heart to hold out against anything you desire. Though we obviously couldn't resist a little further mischief by adding, would this do you? O Albion who destroyed my ancestors, O Albion of the smooth words. In the end, as you can see, Galantz's censored translation appeared in the printed volume, but there's no question that a great deal remained, even in the English version, never mind the uncut Irish, that had potential to upset conservative British readers of the Book of Homage in the immediate aftermath of Easter 1916. So the Book of Homage is unexpectedly inclusive and subtle. It performs a cultural moment with some care, enabling each reader to find within its pages the Shakespeare with which he or she is most comfortable. Enthusiasts for nation and empire could read it untroubled by and large, though they might have balked a little at C.H. Herford's unexpectedly generous and in context brave essay entitled The German Contribution to Shakespeare Criticism. Yet the incipient globalist could also find within its pages expressions of hope in a changing world. Its apparent arbitrariness turns out often to be precise grouping and at times humorous juxtaposition. As an expression of the condition of Shakespeare's studies in its moment, the Book of Homage is unparalleled, but it is far more than that. It makes very apparent how pivotal was the year 1916 in the negotiations between the fading Shakespeare of empire and the emerging global Shakespeare. And it invites the reader to absorb a range of perspectives by no means all compatible upon the British national poet. It is, in other words, a performative memorial, and it underlines both the complexity and the globalism of Galatz's outlook, and by extension, that of the Shakespeare Memorial National Theatre project. Now, the second of Galatz's two main contributions to the tercentenary, and clearly the more unexpected of the two, was the building called the Shakespeare Hut, and you can see it at the bottom of that page. In 1914, as we've seen, the SMNT committee, recognising the need for action, had acquired at substantial cost 
a plot of land. This plot of land is in Bloomsbury at the corner of Keppel and Gower Streets. It's, I don't know if you know it, but it's where the London School of Tropical Hygiene and Tropical Medicine now sits, opposite Senehouse. Almost immediately, war broke out, and they had to decide what should be done with the empty sites in wartime. Attempts to raise money for the building of a theatre with a war on would be considered insensitive, and it was Galance who proposed a solution that he broker an arrangement with the YMCA for the creation of temporary accommodation for overseas troops on the site of the theatre, a series of interconnected buildings to be known as the Shakespeare Hut. The word hut, the standard term at the time for the YMCA's temporary buildings both on the war and home fronts, does not, as you can see, adequately evoke a sense of the building that was erected on the site. Temporary it may have been, but the Shakespeare hut included substantial accommodation. Scores of thousands of beds were let, mainly to Anzac troops, mainly New Zealanders, between 1916 and the war's end. There was recreation space, dining facilities, a shop, and as you can see again over the page, a concert hall, in which Shakespearean performances took place, strictly for the resident soldiers, featuring some of the finest actors of the day, Ellen Terry and Johnston Forbes Robertson, whose wife, Gertrude Elliott, combined management of the Hutt's theatrical program with women's suffrage activism. It was hardly the stage that the SMNT committee had expected to create, but its existence means that Shakespearean performances of a certain kind took place between 1916 and 1919 in a commemorative space on the chosen memorial site. A fact that until recently has simply been forgotten. It was only when the uh, research associates on an Australian Research Council grant that I had with a colleague in Australia got in touch with the School of Tropical Medicine to ask them why in their history of the site they didn't mention the Shakespeare Hut, that they added it. So it had simply been forgotten. The Hut, as the then research associate Elsa Grant Ferguson has shown, is a curious multifaceted space with resonances that both outweigh and are in a certain sense the direct result of its status as a temporary building. Huts, as recent work on Heidegger's hut at Totenauberg has suggested, are frequently seen as embodying a building practice that functions in the shadow of romantic essentialism, as expressions of a belief that a return to a certain kind of primordiality might be possible, as it were, architecturally, and in Heideggerian terms, offering ground for a distinction between the authentic and the inauthentic in relation to lived experience. The Shakespeare hut, however, occupies a place quite oblique to this. For one thing, it was distinctly urban, a space created in large part with the premise of keeping young soldiers away from the temptations, sex and alcohol mainly, of the wartime cityscape. The same applied to the Old Witch Hut for Australian soldiers and the later Eagle Hut for Americans, also at Old Witch and both just across the road from the English department at King's. For another, its non-urban counterpart was the YMCA huts at the front, whose existence was as temporary as the ever-shifting lines of battle. For yet another, the Shakespeare hut was in effect designed to be forgotten, an improvisation solely for wartime a way to deploy the SMNT site for a memorial theatre for a strictly finite period so as to contribute to the war effort. That the hut housed Anzac soldiers, mostly but not entirely New Zealanders, 
was in the SMNT's terms neither here nor there. What seems to have mattered much more to Galas than the identity or nationality of the soldiers occupying the home was the intention that the space should house both Shakespearean performers and related educational activities. As YMCA Secretary Basil Yaxley makes clear when he observes to Galatz in a letter that the hut will, quote, enable the purpose of the Shakespeare Memorial to be fulfilled as far as is possible during wartime by the arrangement of lectures and rendering of plays. Yaxley also notes in this letter that the nature of the hut meant that it could be assembled block by block, and thus, quote, the concert and lecture hall could be put up first. So this seems to be implying his recognition that for his interlocutor, the educational and theatrical possibilities of the hut were paramount. It's the nature of the hut as a temporary space for soldiers that facilitated the performance on its tiny settler's stage of scenes by Shakespeare performed by some of the most prominent actors of the day, who wouldn't normally, it's safe to assume, um, have chosen to act in a little, you know, what looks like a village hall. Um, but for whom the circumstances meant a preparation to perform in such a space. This is the value, I think, to Galatz of the Hut stage, that it enables the performance of what you might call a virtual memorial theatre, one that provokes a layering of commemorative functions as the originary logic of the site, the theatre in memory of Shakespeare, meshes with the accumulating logic of commemoration produced by the Hut's primary function as military accommodation for wartime, and thus the deaths, inevitably, of a proportion of those who passed through its doors. The images, that marvellous image at the bottom there, we can see the word Shakespeare Hut, and there's all those Kiwi soldiers standing outside. Those images of Anzac soldiers in and around the Hut always seem to me very poignant, given that they were basically between Gallipoli and the Somme. Grant Ferguson notes that the original funding for the Hut's lounge had come from the mother of a fallen soldier, Lieutenant Leslie Tweedy, who'd been killed in 1915, making immediate from the outset the multiply commemorative function of the building, even leading in due course to a counter-narrative of the hut's creation, as the dead soldier's mother later claimed to have created the entire hut in memory of her son. Such reallocation of memorial function serves as a version of forgetting, forgetting, that is, the impersonal logic of the hut's memorial status in the natural death of a playwright 300 years earlier, and replacing it with a personal and more immediate commemoration of wartime death by violence. Theatre history, particularly the internal mythology of a given theatre or company, is constituted, I think, by such patchworks of remembering and forgetting, as the presentation of institutional history is adapted to suit subsequent formations, and missions are adjusted to map more effectively onto funding regimes. The tension present in the National Theatre Project from the beginning, its function as outlined by Barker and Archer, both to sustain Shakespearean performance and to champion new playwriting, necessarily finds its counterpart in the histories of the organisation. Daniel Rosenthal's recent history of the National Theatre differs markedly from earlier accounts in this regard. Understandably, he foregrounds Barker and Archer's status as founding fathers, but he offers generous recognition of the place of the SMNT in the National Theatre's origins. This has not always been the case. As Geoffrey Whitworth's attitude to Gullance in his earlier history of the National Theatre suggests, this is his description, behind the kaleidoscopic maze of committees, flitting to and fro, one glimpses the mercurial figure of Israel Gullance, 
benign, discreet, master of innocent intrigue, with every thread in his hands, and alone capable of unravelling the tangled skein when the right moment came. Sounds a bit like George Smiley, doesn't it, rather than an academic who liked theatre. Perhaps this gentle caricaturing of Gallant's is simply a function of time passing. As founder immediately after the war of the British Drama League, which sought to invigorate, reinvigorate the National Theatre Project in face of what it saw as the SMNT sluggishness, Whitworth arguably had an interest in downplaying what Gallant's and the SMNT committee had achieved. Though his final description of Gallant's is affectionate, noting his importance to the Shakespeare National Theatre idea, quote, with which he had been associated from the very beginning, loyal to it through every chance of fortune, and though criticised by some, the axle round which the whole wheel turned. Others have subsequently adopted a dismissive attitude to the SMNT committee, and to Gallant's in particular. Sally Bowman, in her history of the RSC, describes Gallant's as haughty, and misreads the materials in the National Theatre Archive to the extraordinary extent of suggesting that the plan and elevation of the Shakespeare hut is of the proposed theatre itself, which he describes sarcastically as a long, low structure resembling a conglomeration of Stratford tea shops, as if everyone involved in Shakespearean theatre would somehow eventually defer to Stratford for their design aesthetic. And she adds that during the war, the SMNT did nothing except to lease the Bloomsbury site to the YMCA, who built on it a small wooden hut in which to entertain British troops, an assessment which is, of course, thoroughly inaccurate. I've written about the possible reasons for resistance to Gallant's elsewhere. They date right back into the build-up to 1916, and they're not always edifying in word anti-Semitism. There may also be an element of the perennial reluctance of theatre practitioners to acknowledge the relevance of academic intervention in their professional zone, particularly perhaps when the academic in question has adopted the role of cultural entrepreneur, as Gallant's did. Whatever the reason, one effect of the downplaying of the achievements of Gallant's, and along with him, the Shakespeare Memorial National Theatre Committee, is to suppress the significance of the impact of the tercentenary on the shape of British Shakespearean theatre today. It is, of course, absolutely right and proper that the National sees Barker and Archer as founding fathers in a way that Gallant's is clearly not. And there's no question that the establishment of the NT was the result, absolutely above all, of the sheer doggedness shown by theatre practitioners. Yet without the work of the SMNT committee and without Gallant's persistence in the form particularly of the Shakespeare Hurt, which helped sustain the SMNT's existence throughout the war, and most importantly enabled the first performances of Shakespeare on what might be called a memorial stage, it's arguable that without those things, the National Theatre Project might have faded away. So it's clear, clear that key elements of the origins of the National Theatre lie in the 1916 tercentenary. What is less well known, though it may account for the, the dismissiveness of Bowman, is that the Royal Shakespeare Company also owes an element of its history to the tercentenary, and specifically to Gallant's entrepreneurship. Though the timeline on the RSC's website simply skips the period from 1913 to 1925. In the course of 1918, the young director William Bridges Adams had a series of conversations with William Archer in which he argued that the best way to proceed with the aim of creating a national theatre was to found a company first and build a theatre later, an argument that would in fact haunt the NT for decades. At this point, the prehistories of the NT and the RSC briefly overlap. 
1919, Bridges Adams took over from Frank Benson as director of the, the Stratford-upon-Avon Festival. And Archibald Flower, chairman of the festival, encouraged the SMNT to support the launching of a new company that, by contrast with Benson, Benson had done a great deal of cutting, would perform Shakespeare's plays largely uncut. Bridges Adams acquired the nickname Honor Bridges Adams. <laughs> and would, though based for part of the year in Stratford, have a commitment to playing in London and to touring. The SMNT chose to support this project, and a joint committee was created between the governors of the Stratford Memorial Theatre and members of the SMNT committee, including Archer, Littleton, and Gallance. A very rare instance of Shakespearean collaboration rather than competition between London and Stratford. The new Shakespeare Company, as it, was for, as it was called, did not directly become the Royal Shakespeare Company. It was, in fact, viewed by influential members of the SMNT, not least George Bernard, Bernard Shaw, as potentially the basis for a national theatre company. But it embodied what was to become the RSC Blueprint, a Shakespeare-centred repertory company with a base in Stratford, a London programme, and a commitment to national touring. And it was funded by SMNT money, or more precisely, by the income the SMNT committee was currently receiving from the Shakespeare Act. Between 1919 and its demolition in 1923, the hut had become the temporary home of the Indian YMCA, an arrangement which provided £3,000 a year in rent. It was this exact sum that the SMNT committee used to fund the new Shakespeare Company between 1919 and 1923. So, briefly, the Shakespeare Hut, the product of Golanz's entrepreneurship, underpinned an early phase of the history of the RSC, sustaining Shakespearean performance at Stratford during a difficult period. It can further be argued that in a certain way, the third and most recent of Britain's primary Shakespeare-producing theatre companies, Shakespeare's Globe, also had its seeds in the 1916 centenary. The official history of the reconstructed globe, of course, offers a rather different story of origins, one that lies firmly in the extraordinary inspiration and persistence of the American actor Sam Wanamaker, and rightly so, for scores of reasons. Without Wanamaker's indefatigable energy and extraordinary persuasive powers, the project would never have got off the ground. As Paul Prescott has said, quote, few theatrical spaces in the world owe so much to the vision, vitality, and perseverance of one person. Yet in celebrating Wanamaker's remarkable achievement, the Globe tends, understandably, to downplay Wanamaker's predecessors in the long-standing project to create a reconstructed Elizabethan theatre in London. Above all, as I've already suggested, William Pohl, lifelong evangelist for the recreation of early modern conditions of performance, whose 1897 plans for a small-scale replica of the globe were, to his distaste, the basis for the Elizabethan theatre that had formed the centrepiece of the Shakespeare's England exhibition of 1912. Powell's vision, one that, as it happens, overlapped to some extent with Galatz, though by and large they clashed more than they agreed, was not solely theatrical. It was to create a Shakespeare memorial that would combine an Elizabethan theatre with a Shakespearean library and museum. In other words, an establishment that would be in roughly equal measure theatrical and educational. The extent to which Wanamaker's project has a direct link with that of Pohl depends on which myth of origin you choose. Prescott reports that in a file Wanamaker sent to, the, to an archive at Boston University towards the end of his life, 
included a program from the Cleveland Great Lakes Festival of 1936, you can see that, to which he had attached a post-it note with the handwritten exclamation, the beginning. And Prescott notes that Wanamaker had spent the summer of that year playing bit parts on a replica Elizabethan stage at the festival. There it is at the bottom of the handout page. But, Prescott adds, the beginning was a movable moment and would depend on which version of the Genesis story Wanamaker happened to be telling. One of which was that, quote, the idea of rebuilding the globe first occurred to the 15-year-old working-class Chicago boy when he was taken by his father to the World's Fair in 1934, when he was struck by the beauty of a reconstructed globe. Over the page again. Rather a fuzzy image, that's the only image there is of it. Which was one of a dozen or so Assat's landmarks comprising the, quote, English village, unquote. Now, if this sounds very much like the 1912 Shakespeare's England exhibition and its replica globe, that's because the design of the 1934 Chicago theatre was in fact based on that of 1912, thus creating a direct causal link between Wanamaker's project, one of the SMNT committee's fundraising events, and Pohl's original globe design of 1897. That's the final image on the handout. The point, of course, is that it doesn't especially matter which of these stories, if any, is the correct one. Each underlines the fact that Wanamaker's globe is the fulfillment of the project that Pohl and others had championed since the end of the 19th century, to build a theatre that would allow Shakespearean performance, to use Pohl's own words, upon a stage surrounded on three sides by the audience, the only kind of stage where the actor moves and speaks in the Shakespearean focus, the only conditions in which the correct interpretation can be given to his work on the stage. Pohl was a little over forthright sometimes, she would say. Prescott is right to note that, as he puts it, there is a world, or perhaps an ocean of difference, between Pohl's antiquarianism and Wanamaker's idea that Shakespeare might serve as the locus and alibi for a joyous civic and communal experience. But he's right, too, when he acknowledges the ancestral link between Pohl and Wanamaker, between the neo-Elizabethan movement of the late 19th century and the logical, if delayed, fruition of that movement a century later the opening of the Third Globe Theatre. Shakespeare's Globe has, in the two decades of its existence, become the de facto memorial theatre in London, frequently mistaken by tourists for an actual site of Shakespearean memory, Shakespeare's own original globe refurbished. The challenges over the claims to authenticity that have been made on behalf of the Globe, though not usually it's important to note by actual Globe employees, are well documented, and I don't need to repeat them, but the point is to acknowledge that the Shakespeare Memorial National Theatre story suggests what you might call a degree of economy in the globe's prevailing origin tale. In a certain way, this is an instance of the return of the repressed. After all, the new globe, with its extraordinarily active and engaged education programme, most fully expresses, far more than the educational programmes of other equivalent organisations, the dual vision of theatre and education that Powell had consistently championed and that Galantz sought to develop in the unlikeliest of ways by means of the Shakespeare hut. The reconstructed globe is not a direct product of the tercentenary, less so even than is the Royal Shakespeare Company, yet its story nonetheless intersects intriguingly with that of Galantz and the SMNT, and its current status as London's primary producer of Shakespeare means that it, 
more than its immediate rivals, the RSC and the National Theatre, occupies for the moment the role of London's Shakespeare Memorial Theatre. This has come about for contingent reasons. The RSC's departure from its long-standing fixed London base at the Barbican in 2001 ceded key territory, just as the globe was beginning to establish a bridgehead on the backside. Whilst the artistic directorship of the National Theatre does not at present appear to view Shakespearean preservation or innovation as a priority, this state of play would presumably wryly please Powell if if he were here to witness it, but it would surely baffle the majority of the SMNT committee. That said, I suspect Gallant himself would cast a benign eye over it all. Experience surely taught him that it's the vision, far more than the detail, that matters in the end. And the single most obvious conclusion from the history of the SMNT is that stasis is never achieved. You build a statue, you build a memorial theatre, you think that by definition, commemoration will continue on those sites indefinitely. But it doesn't. It disappears and then reappears elsewhere in unpredicted locales. The forgetting, perhaps suppression is not too strong a word, of the achievements of Israel Galaz is synecdochic of the deletion of the memory of the tercentenary as a key impetus in the creation of London's major theatres for the production of Shakespeare, by which I mean both theatrical and cultural production. Commemoration is a looking back, a remembering. But it's also, it also, as we've seen, involves a great deal of forgetting. Cultural organisations tend to look back only selectively as the current incumbents seek to avoid being tied to earlier visions of the institution's mission. New myths of origin are established as interest groups complete, compete for foundational recognition. In the case of Shakespeare, the memorial and the national are closely bound. And Galance's insistent belief in the inter- or supranational significance of Shakespeare does not fit comfortably with the overarching narrative of a national Shakespeare theatre to which the tercentenary became subsumed. The awkward negotiation between Shakespeare, the English national poet, and what we now call global Shakespeare arguably began with Galance's contribution to the tercentenary. Above all, the Book of Homage, with its extraordinary global reach, at the time of a world war. But the tensions of Shakespearean commemoration and the ongoing struggle for ownership of Shakespeare have led to a sustained distortion of Galantz's role in the establishment of the primary players in the Shakespeare industry in Britain today, and it has cost him his place in public memory. So, the London season, Shakespeare 400, which we've spent the last five or so years organising, and which is more than halfway through now, Kingsley's homage not only to Shakespeare 400 years ago, but also to Israel Galaz, a mere century ago, which is why he's been the topic of my talk today. If we, I and my colleagues, don't celebrate him, who will? And I think somebody should. Last evening in the Pierce Museum, Andy Murphy offered us a tale of things remembered and things forgotten in the interweaving of nation Shakespeare in 1916. If centenaries have any value, It must surely be in their provocation to look back with perspective, to reflect on what has and hasn't been told over a hundred years. We could, in looking right back to 1616, focus on the others who died that year, the playwright Francis Beaumont, the entrepreneur Philip Henslow, the geographer Richard Hacklett, looking a little bit further abroad, Cervantes. But Shakespeare, because of the pervasiveness of his influence across the four centuries, because of his status 
ongoing status as a cultural battleground, offers us, I think, by far the greater scope for reflecting, as we should in 2016, on how our ways of thinking about theatre, about culture, about nation, about how many of the cultural institutions we take for granted actually came into being, about how all of these things we care about interweave and overlap, and how easy it is, as we remember, also to forget. Thank you.